Welcome to Drones Over Canada. I'm your host, Dave. Today's episode is episode 9, Meteorology. It's the second last knowledge requirement in the RPAS test. It's also not my strongest section. When I started preparing for this course, I realized that I was going to need some help on meteorology. So I reached out to a good friend of mine, Captain Doug Morris. Now, Captain Doug Morris is a world-renowned author and speaker. He's also a 787 captain at a major airline in Canada. He's written for the En Route magazine for Air Canada for several years, and he teaches pilot refresher courses as new hire Air Canada pilots come online. He's written a book called Canadian Aviation Weather, which in my opinion is the best aviation weather textbook in Canada. I leaned on it hard for this episode, and a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about in the next 25 minutes or so will be directly from this book. As I said over and over again during the last eight podcasts, I really firmly believe that it's important everyone understands these topics and not just memorizes the answers to be able to complete the Transport Canada exams. Your best method of understanding meteorology is to buy a very good book, and I strongly suggest you buy Doug's book, www.canadianaviationweather.com. It's a steal of a deal, and it's the last aviation weather textbook you'll ever need. Okay, guys, let's jump right into this. The first thing we're going to talk about is the composition of the atmosphere. What is the air around us made of? Now, many people think that because we breathe oxygen, oxygen makes up the majority of the air. However, that would be incorrect. The composition of the atmosphere is as follows. It comprises of approximately 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1%, the leftover 1% rather, is made up of a few things like carbon dioxide and water vapor. Some important topics that we'll have to discuss today are pressure and density. Now density, as you recall, is the mass per volume of an object. Atmospheric pressure is the weight of a column of air. Now this is measured in either millibars, hectopascals, or inches of mercury. Unfortunately, in aviation, we tend to mix up units quite a bit. Hectopascals and millibars are effectively the same thing. Inches of mercury can easily be converted to millibars. When we're talking about pressure, we may talk about station pressure. And that's the atmospheric pressure at a given station. For aviation purposes, it's usually an airport. If any of you have started into manned aviation at all, you'll be familiar with weather reports. And these weather reports, which we'll touch on later in the podcast, always identify the station pressure using inches of mercury in Canada. There's also what's called sea level pressure. Now, sea level pressure is the pressure of a column of air adjusted for sea level. In meteorology, we often talk about high or low pressure systems. Now, we have to remember that these are relative to the air around it. So there's no distinct term of what would actually constitute a high pressure system. It just has to be higher pressure than the air beside it. 
Something to remember is that the air around a high moves clockwise. It also moves upwards and outwards. The air around a low moves counterclockwise and downwards and inwards. Another important concept to understand is that if a column of air rises, it cools. As it cools, it also converges. The opposite can be said as well. As a column of air decreases in height, it will warm, and as it warms, it will expand. It's very important in meteorology to understand these terms, because this is what causes a lot of weather. One of the more interesting topics we'll talk about today are clouds and cloud formations. Now I know if you're like me, you find these very interesting. Unfortunately today, we're not gonna have time to touch on all the different clouds and how they form and what they mean. However, if you're interested, I highly recommend you check out Captain Doug's book, Canadian Aviation Weather. You can find it online at www.canadianaviationweather.com or any aviation flight store in Canada should carry it. Clouds are based on their height. We've classified them as high, medium, low, or clouds of vertical development. In this episode, we're just going to touch on those lower clouds and the clouds of vertical development, because those are going to be the most important for our pass operations. The first cloud type we'll talk about are stratus clouds. Now stratus clouds form a uniform layer. They can start anywhere from the surface, in which it would be called fog, all the way up to about 6,500 feet. These are the clouds that a lot of the time you'll have a little bit of light precipitation and drizzle from. They're also one of the more important cloud formations to know about because as these clouds form, you're going to see manned VFR airplanes move lower and lower to avoid them. Stratocumulus is a grayish or whitish low-lying cloud that tends to be common and easily identifiable. The bases of these clouds can be flat, wavy, or have a rolled appearance. By itself, they very rarely actually produce precipitation, but in the winter, you may get some snow, some snow flurries from them. Some of the low clouds we'll talk about include fog, which is when those clouds actually come and touch the ground. We also have what are called clouds of vertical development. Now, these are ones that may have started as different clouds but through instability in the atmosphere, as well as daytime heating, they build vertically. One of the most common you'll see in the summer called towering cumulus, also referred to as TCUs. Now these clouds are sort of the precursor to thunderstorms. So they're very important to be able to identify. They'll produce moderate turbulence if you fly through them. And again, manned deviation will generally avoid these. So if you're flying near them, expect airplanes to move a little bit differently than normal to avoid these clouds. When they build into a thunderstorm, they become known as a cumulonimbus. These are the thick and heavy, dense clouds that we see. They're also the ones that produce large amounts of water, hail, up to extreme levels of turbulence and should be definitely avoided. It's important to note with these types of clouds and storms that the turbulence can extend very far outside of them. 
up to about 30 to 50 miles. So just because it's not right over top of you doesn't mean you won't be affected by it. You'll also see erratic winds near these clouds. So if you are flying an ARP pass with a thunderstorm in the area, be very cautious. And if it's within about 30 nautical miles, you probably want to wait it out. Now we also have what's called Nimbostratus. Nimbostratus is a layered cloud. Normally this has a lot of water. Nimbus means precipitation. We have stratus fractus, which means fragmented. Usually this is caused by high winds that sort of blow off the top. And we have cumulus fractus, which are very similar. They're cumulus clouds that are puffy in formation. They look torn as well, hence the fractus term. One of the most important types of cloud layers for the RPAS operator is fog. Fog is the lowest layer. It's also maybe the most critical because it impairs visibility quite quickly. Fog can be created very rapidly. Luckily, it can also be dissipated very quickly. There are six types of fog. Advection fog, radiation fog, steam fog, upslope fog, ice fog, and frontal fog. Now, advection fog is created when moist, warm air moves over a cool surface. Radiation fog is created when there's a parcel of air that's quite moist. As the ground begins to lose its heat and cool, it cools the surrounding air, which causes that water vapor to condense and create fog. Upslope fog is caused when moist air is forced up a hill. Being forced up the hill causes that air to rise and cool, which condenses the water vapor and creates fog. Ice fog is a very neat phenomenon. We see a lot in aviation in either the Arctic or the prairies on a very cool winter day. It can be a perfectly clear day. And as the jet engine warms, compresses, and then pushes out air, that air is rapidly cooled by the surrounding air. Any water vapor in that air quickly condenses and forms a temporary fog. It only lasts a few minutes. We see this a lot in Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg during the winter time, as well as the further north latitudes. Now frontal precipitation fog is an interesting phenomenon. This is caused by the evaporation of water droplets. What that does is it actually cools the surrounding air, causes water vapor to condense and create fog. Steam fog is another interesting phenomenon. Now, steam fog is caused when cold air masses override warm water. It's sort of the opposite of the situation that produces advection fog. Water vapor escaping from the water surface saturates the colder air, instead of the colder air saturating the water, as we saw earlier. The situation frequently arises during the late summer and early fall, when early outbreaks of cooler, drier air take place. The relatively warm lakes and rivers will be choking in fog, and if an airport's nearby, steam fog may infiltrate the runways. Now, as we said, 
there's a few ways to dissipate this fog. One of the two, or let's say the two easiest ways, an increase in wind or an increase in temperature. All right, guys, let's jump into the six different types of turbulence. The first is called convective turbulence. And as the name suggests, it's when the surface of the earth releases its heat. It does so unevenly, which creates different rates in the air currents and therefore turbulence. The next is mechanical. Mechanical turbulence is caused by the airflow moving over objects on the ground. Think of things like trees or buildings. Or graphic is caused by the air moving up or down mountains or hills. As it does so, it does so at different speeds, and oftentimes the wind can change direction suddenly through a valley. The next is frontal turbulence. Frontal turbulence is caused by a shift in wind due to a front. Low-level wind shear is the shift in wind due to a low-level jet, or another area like a thunderstorm. Our last and final is called clear air turbulence. Clear air turbulence is often caused by the jet stream. You can't see it as the name suggests. The jet stream is sort of like a highway of air and oftentimes it can get very very fast up to 200 miles an hour sometimes. The air beside the jet stream however is usually moving relatively slowly and that change in wind gradient often causes turbulence especially any time that a jet stream moves suddenly or turns. The next topic we'll cover on this podcast is wind. Now, believe it or not, what we're going to cover today is only scratching the surface of wind. If you're looking for more resources, I highly recommend you purchase Captain Doug's book, Canadian Aviation Weather. It's going to cover all these topics in a lot greater detail than we have today. It's also going to have better pictures and explanations, lots of diagrams, a full glossary that includes all the different definitions of the words that we're learning. It also can help you decode metars and TAFs as well as graphical forecast areas and other different charts that we're going to touch on today. I can't imagine anybody being disappointed. And for those of you that are thinking of moving on from a certificate to a manned pilot license, I think it's a must have. Make sure you check them out at www.canadianaviationweather.com. Now moving on to wind, we have what's called the Coriolis effect. This is the spinning of the earth which creates a westerly wind or westerly flow aloft as you'll hear in the northern hemisphere. Now that's fantastic, except for we're not talking about the high atmosphere when we're using our pass. We're talking about the lower atmosphere, close to the ground. Now this is known as the boundary layer. The boundary layer is greatly affected by the topography and daytime heating of the Earth's surface. What this means is that although we can expect a westerly flow aloft, down closer to the surface we may have wind from any direction. There's something called the diurnal variation. This causes gusty surface winds. And what this is, is during daytime heating, the air currents moving up and heating, cooling as they rise, and then sinking again, ends up pulling the strong winds from much above the land, like four, six, and even 10,000 feet down to the surface. 
This can easily create a 35 to 40 knot wind on the surface. The other thing we're going to talk about are some micro variations in wind. These are usually caused by local topographical changes, like flow of the air over hills and mountains. There's also a specialized phenomenon known as the Chinook in Calgary. Catabatic winds, sometimes called drainage winds, are downslope winds that arise due to nighttime radiational cooling, which causes the overlying air to become denser and ride down the mountains as it cools. There's also the opposite, which is anabactic. Anabactic winds are caused when you have a sunny slope that's heated a little bit differently than its neighbor. What this means is that area is prone to heat up faster and therefore rise up the mountain before it cools. These are often very localized and can create very bumpy, turbulent air. There's also something called a sea breeze. Now, as we've learned, land heats up faster than water. During the day, the air over the land expands and rises as it warms, towering the surface pressure. The cooler, denser air sitting over a lake or ocean moves in to replace that rising air and sets up an onshore breeze. There's a return flow at about 1,500 to 3,000 feet, which causes continual circulation. Now, this is normally a daytime thing. At night, you have the opposite, what's called a land breeze. This is when the land cools under the clear skies. Water that has been heating up all day forms an underlying lower pressure system. The cool air now sitting over the land, which is higher pressure, moves towards the water, lower pressure, forming a land breeze. Land breezes tend to be much weaker than sea breezes. The Chinook, as we discussed, is an interesting phenomenon that we only see in Canada around the Calgary area. What this is, is air moving over the mountains. As it's forced up and over the mountains, it is forced to cool and condense. It will then lose a lot of its moisture. Once it loses its moisture, it comes back to the other side of the mountains where it's forced down. As it's forced down, it ends up being quite warm because it's lost all its moisture already. This is how we get these nice warm winds in Calgary that we don't see a lot of the other areas in Canada, primarily in the winter. And it can actually push the temperature up past two, even 10 degrees Celsius. Now, the other thing we'll talk about quickly that sort of ties in with this is topographical effects. And these are things like mountains or hills that are gonna create sort of a localized wind. As you can imagine, if the wind is able to enter a valley, it will sort of follow the valley. And often times in a valley, the wind will be much different than it would be otherwise. Most of us are familiar with weather reporting that we hear on the news. And one of the favorite things of weather reporters to say is something along the line of there's a cold front moving through or there's a warm front moving through. But what exactly does that mean? 
Across the planet, there are what are called air masses. Now these are large groups of air with similar characteristics. These characteristics can include the amount of moisture that they have in them, as well as the temperature that they're at. They generally move, and when they move, sometimes they hit each other. At this point where two air masses collide is called a front. Unlike two liquids, when they meet, they mix, air masses don't like to mix. They will generally ride over or under each other. This creates sort of a weird convergence zone where we have different bodies of air with different characteristics. That's why cold and warm fronts often bring very particular weather. It's also very easy to measure where these fronts are using different pressure charts and weather charts. What we're gonna go ahead and do is put some things up on the Facebook page that will describe the weather phenomenon you'll see as a cold front or warm front moves through. It's important to realize that these fronts can be very, very long, sometimes hundreds of miles wide. You probably won't be able to go around them, but if you are operating in an environment where a front is moving through, it'll be very important to understand what will happen as far as clouds and moisture and winds. We'll go ahead and put that up for you. Now we've touched on icing a little bit already in the podcast, but we're gonna go into it a little bit more detail now. The types of icing include rime ice, clear ice, mixed ice, and frost. Now frost is when condensation freezes. Normally it happens overnight, especially in the spring or the fall. We usually see this when we have to scrape our windshields off in the morning. Now, rime ice is sort of a milky white opaque color. It's caused by low and slow freezing. You'll get this through stratiform clouds. Clear ice, however, like the name suggests, is clear. This usually is attracted very quickly, often from super cooled water droplets. A good example when you might see this would be freezing rain. Mixed, as the name suggests, is a combination of the two. Now it's important to realize that icing is very detrimental to any R-Pass. And in the regulations, it does clearly state that you should not be operating an R-Pass that has icing on it. So make sure you avoid the places and the times when you could get icing. Oftentimes it's very heavy and it's very detrimental to performance. So make sure you stay away from that. Some of the components of an R-Pass that are susceptible of icing are any of the components that create lift, such as propellers or wings. Generally speaking, the thinner the surface, the more susceptible it is to icing. So something like a thin propeller is actually more susceptible than a thick wing. Moving on, we'll touch on thunderstorms one more time. Some requirements for development of a thunderstorm would be an unstable atmosphere, normally created by daytime heating. But it can also be created by the topography, such as air moving up a mountain, or a front, where air is pushed up over another air mass. There's a lot of hazards that are corresponding to these thunderstorms. We've touched them on already, but like updrafts and downdrafts, strong gusts, 
downburst, or even microbursts. There's also the obvious hail, lightning, and any antennas that you're using could be struck by that lightning. I strongly suggest you stay at least 30 miles or 50 kilometers away from these thunderstorms. The last thing we'll talk about are some meteorological services available to pilots. Now there's a few different things. A lot of them are quite difficult to touch on on a podcast environment. So we will go ahead and create another video for you, as well as post some stuff up on the Facebook page. The first thing is the Flight Information Center telephone service. Now this is the 1-866-WX brief service we've talked about before. These FIS specialists can help you out with anything from NOTAMs to weather. They can give you a little bit of a briefing of the local area, and this is all free. There's a Nav Canada Aviation Weather website, which we've also touched on. This is where you can get your METARs, which just as a reminder, are station actual, and they're updated every hour. You can also get your TAFs there. Those are the 12 or 24 hour validity forecasts that are updated every six hours. Keep in mind that these services are only available at an aviation weather station like an airport. Some big airports also have ADISs. This is an automatic terminal information service that's broadcast on a radio frequency, although sometimes it does offer a telephone call-in as well. It's either a recorded or a controller being recorded, going over certain meteorological aspects that are noticed at the time of recording. Don't be afraid as well to use non-aviation sources. Civil weather services can be a great help, especially in areas that aren't covered by an airport. You can also use some aviation weather reports. We've touched on the METAR and the TAS. There's also some automated weather observation stations. And you can go ahead and look at things like graphical forecast areas, and some pressure charts to try and figure out exactly what's going on. Again, we're going to touch on these in the YouTube video because they're a little bit easier to look at there. I'd like to say a big thank you again to Captain Doug Morris at CanadianAviationWeather.com or www.PilotWeatherBook.com where he has some awesome ebooks that'll help you out along the way. Now these books are specifically tailored to aviation, which is his specialty. Keep in mind he is a meteorologist as well. You won't get a better resource than this. They're really going to help you understand these topics that we talked about today. And anybody who is looking at manned aviation, definitely have a look at these books. Keep in mind that we're going to post some stuff up on our Facebook page, Drones Over Canada. We're also going to make a YouTube video, so make sure you subscribe to the channel, Drones Over Canada. Have a look at some of our previous videos to help you understand some of the topics we talked about. We're going to have more and exciting videos come up there shortly. As always, make sure you share and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.